Grab your Bible and open up to the book of Genesis, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers are at the front here. They're going to walk towards the back, and we'd love to get a Bible into your hands. So you can just raise your hand up in the air, and we'll make sure a Bible gets across to you. And if you don't own a Bible, take this home. It's our gift for you today. We'd love for you to have a copy of God's Word. We pray that it would be a blessing to you. Well, it's good to be back. I know uh, last week Pastor Brian mentioned that I needed another week to sort out uh, this text. He wasn't entirely wrong, um, but I was doing other things. Um, I was uh, in Saskatchewan, as he mentioned, and I was able to, uh, to work alongside Pastor Trevor Peacock out at Redemption Calgary North, and we were uh, teaching uh, some senior students uh, about church planting. So we were really blessed by that and thankful for the work the Lord is doing in Bible colleges like the one we were at, Miller College of the Bible, trusting that God's going to raise up another generation of young people who love Him and want to serve Him. The truth is that, uh, that this is a difficult passage, and um, it has been the source of much debate for millennia now, and it's actually packed full of interpretive difficulties. It is, um, by every estimation, the most challenging interpretive passage in the entire book of Genesis, perhaps even in the Old Testament. There are multiple views on multiple parts of this text and so, as we look at this text, I'm reminded that it's, it's incredibly important to approach a text like this with great humility, recognizing that, that good people can come up with different conclusions on a text like this. So, we want to approach this with great humility. I'm also very aware that when it comes to a text like this that can be very technical and challenging, um, it's very easy to get lost. I'm just staring at the tree and forgetting about the forest. And so I, I don't want us, as we kind of navigate through this, and we're going to pick it apart a little bit to understand it as best we can, I don't want us to miss the main point of this text. I want to say to you at the gates that even if you maybe disagree with kind of where I land on this passage, that's okay. I don't think that the issues here are worth dividing over or being angry about. And I think that there are multiple interpretations of this passage that essentially lead us to the exact same place. This passage is, is important in the flow of the book of Genesis because it actually forms a kind of hinge between the first five chapters where we've been looking at the, the, the last chapters, chapter four and five, the genealogies of both Seth and Cain. And now what's going to happen is we're going to move forward through time and history at a very rapid pace. It's almost, it's almost like we're, we're not going to get any details on what life was like until a certain moment in time where we're going to see with great clarity that things have become incredibly destructive. And the hinge here is going to help us understand why God is going to bring in chapters 6 through 9 this incredible cataclysmic judgment upon the earth with a flood. This passage here is the divine rationale for the flood. It is the divine explanation for why the flood, the worldwide flood that is going to wipe out every living creature on the earth, why that's going to be absolutely necessary. 
And I think that's really important because a lot of people, when they think of something like the flood, they think, well, well, certainly the Bible can't actually be true because something like this, this worldwide global flood, I mean, that seems a little bit extreme, doesn't it? I mean, that's, that's a little drastic. And, and to be fair, I think it is extreme. I think it is drastic. But the question is Why? Why was this necessary? Why this extreme measure? As I said, this is the the divine rationale for God's apocalyptic judgment upon the earth. And as we dig into this text, I think we're given three divine explanations for the judgment that is about to come. I want to read this passage, and then I want to pull it apart. Here's what it says, beginning in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 8. It says, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is extreme judgment But here I think we see that it reveals three specific things that we're supposed to pay close attention to. First, it reveals the depths of human depravity. Verse 1 through 5 really lay this out in incredible fashion. And and the times of Enoch are behind us. It's kind of the the sense of this text, right? The times of Enoch where people walked with God, where where the people called upon the name of the Lord. There was a a kind of revival that was taking place. Well, all of a sudden, as we fast forward through history, what we find out is that that revival, that walking with God, that calling upon the name of the Lord, it was short-lived. Well, maybe it was long. (laughs) They lived a long time. But where we find ourselves now is a completely different place. It's a distant memory, and now that the whole pre-flood culture has done a headlong plunge into depravity so deep that it deserves to be totally annihilated. What is described here is appalling, it is shocking, and it is sobering. And we see in the very first verse that humanity is multiplying. There's a sense in which we're being reminded that it is humanity's role to multiply and fill the earth. But remember all the way back in the beginning what the purpose of that multiplication was for? It's for the glory of God. Little image bearers who, who knew God, who loved God, who walked with God, who would grow up to image God to the world. 
But instead, we have this radical contrast being given to us. Multiplication is happening at an exponential rate, but you know what's multiplying even faster than people? Sin. Uh, Apparently, the saying is biblical, more people equals more problems. And we witness in these first few verses the, the utter degeneration of humanity And we see that happening in in a few different ways that I want to quickly unpack. Well, maybe not so quickly. By the way, this first point is going to be the longest point. So buckle in. If you're like, we got three points. The last two will be shorter. We're going to do the bulk of our work up front here because there's a lot to pull apart. But here's what we see in these first five verses. In In the depravity of humanity, we see that marriage is demonized, violence is idolized, and life is shortened. So here we run into our first interpretive challenge. We see here that as humanity is multiplying, something unique happens in verse 2. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Now, the interpretive challenge here is determining who exactly these people are. Who are the sons of God, and who are the daughters of man? There are three main um, positions that have been taken in the history of the church. The first one um, is is that this is a a historical view of the lines of Cain and the lines of Seth. So in other words, the, the sons of God would be the godly line of Seth. These are the people who are supposed to be walking with God. And the daughters of man are the the ungodly line of Cain. And so throughout the history of the church, this has been been a popular view, and it's a very reasonable view. I mean, we've already, as we've looked through the book of Genesis, looked at how essentially Moses is dividing all of humanity into two groups. There are those who are going to know God, there there are the seed of the woman, and there are those who are going to be of the seed of the serpent. It's the only two groups in all the Bible. And so what we would have here in this perspective, in this view, is this intermingling begins to take place between the ungodly line of Cain and the godly line of Seth. And all of a sudden what's happening is you have people who are supposed to keep their lines pure. Now we're not talking about ethnic here, we're talking about spiritually pure. And there's, there's some evidence for this view, just even if you, if you look at the, the nation of Israel. Do you remember the nation of Israel was not supposed to intermarry with the nations around them? Do you remember that? The pagan nations around them were off limits when it came to marriage. Why? Again, this isn't an ethnic prohibition. It's a spiritual prohibition. And the idea was this, that listen, Israel, if you go and you marry from all these pagan, idol-worshipping nations, inevitably what's going to happen is you are going to be pulled away from worshipping God, and you are going to worship lowercase g gods who are nothing but demons. It's the biblical, listen, this, you know what, you know what Israel's told? Kids, listen up. Missionary dating is a bad idea. (sighs) Inevitably, what's going to happen is you're not going to pull them, right? We we even see this, by the way, in King Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived. He, He lives for God all of his life, but you want to know what his downfall is? Women. He loved too many women. Women from the nations. And eventually, they pulled his heart away from worshiping God. 
This is a possible view that was popularized by Augustine, St. Augustine in his work, The City of God. It was embraced by men like Chrysostom in the early church history. Uh, the reformers, Martin Luther and John Calvin, um, they leaned heavily into Augustine and they adopted this view as well. It, it's compelling for a number of reasons, but I'm not sure it's the right one. In fact, I'm pretty sure it's not. That The second view is actually less likely than this one, and that's this view that, that these sons of, of God are actually tyrant kings, they're, they're this oppressive group of men, of leaders, and, and they, what, what they do is they really introduce polygamy into the world, and they just take all the women they want, and they, they oppress the weak and the poor. I, I don't think that's compelling, so I'm just going to leave it at that. The one I think is accurate, you're going you're to think is the craziest of all. And here it is. Demons intermarried with human beings. It's a supernatural view. And in this view, the sons of God refer to divine beings. And I got a few reasons I just want to lay out for you to, to try to prove this point, and I want you to see the, the emphasis here on the text. I got, I got really five reasons. So, so here's the first reason why I think this is accurate. The phrase, sons of God, is used only a handful of times in the Old Testament, and every time, every time, without question, it refers to angelic beings. Let me show you um, some of the verses where it's used. Um, Job, in particular, at the beginning of Job, the introduction to Job, we see this uh, bear out with Job. It says, now there was a day when the sons of God, there is that phrase, they came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. So here's the image. In the book of Job, it's God is with his divine counsel in the heavenly places. And so what we're seeing here is a window into heaven where the angelic beings are meeting with God, and Satan marches his way into their presence to present this case against Job. Job chapter 2, verse 1, look at what it says here. It says, again, there was a day when the sons of God, there's that exact phrase in the Hebrew again, came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. So we have this, this picture then of these angelic beings, but that's not it. In Job 38, listen to what it says here. Uh, it talks about when the morning stars sang together. This is talking about the creation of the world, the creation of the universe, when they sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So in other words, there's this picture of the, the angelic beings beings, seeing the creation, of, the creation of the world that God had made, and they're shouting for joy in the heavenly places. Aside from this place in Genesis, there's one other spot in the Hebrew Bible that uses this phrase, sons of God, and it's in the book of Daniel. Now, Daniel is not written in Hebrew in this portion. It's written in Aramaic, but it's the exact same phrase in Aramaic. Listen to what it says. He answered and said, but I see four men unbound. Remember, I'm Daniel's friends thrown into the, the furnace. I see four men. There's only three thrown in. Four men walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Every time this phrase is used in the Hebrew Bible, without fail, it refers to angelic beings. Here's the second reason why I favor this translation, um, because the translators of the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, 
It's what the disciples would have been familiar with, by the way. It uses the word angels here. So, so they believed, and when they read the phrase son of God, when they were writing the Septuagint, translating the Hebrew Bible into Greek, the translators simply said angels. That's what this is referring to. Here's the third reason. Um, the book of Enoch which is an extra-biblical book. It's not canonical. Um, it, it's not a part of our Bible. It is what's referred to as an intertestamental book. It's written uh, between the time of the Old and the New Testament, that 400-year gap between those two books being written. Uh, this book, though it's, by the way, it's not authoritative and it's not entirely accurate, um, yet it was familiar to the original audience in the Bible, especially the New Testament authors. It's alluded to actually a couple of times in the New Testament in the book of Jude, and Peter also alludes to this book. And it refers to these events, and it refers to these individuals. In this, this, in this event, they talk about uh, them being divine beings, angelic beings who intermarried with human beings. Let me give you a fourth reason, and that is the witness of the New Testament. As I mentioned, Peter alludes to the book of Enoch, and there are a few passages where uh, the events that are taking place in the book of Genesis are actually being described. I, I want to just show you these verses. I think it's really helpful. Uh, first, first Peter 3, uh, 19 and 20. It it's describing um, these, these prior events is in which uh, he went, this is talking about Jesus, um, after his death, in bet in the, between the time of his death and resurrection, uh, Peter says this is what Jesus did. He went uh, down and he proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formally did not obey when God's patience waited, look at this, in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So Peter seems to reach back to this event here to tell us that there's something that happened, something unique. And these spirits, uh, by the way, every time this, this phrase spirits is used in the scriptures, it's used to describe supernatural beings. So we're not talking about human spirits that are, that are down there that Jesus went to proclaim victory over. There are demonic spirits that were punished for something they did back in the days of Noah. Look at 2 Peter 2, 4 through 5. It says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness, with seven others when he brought a flood upon the world, uh, world of the ungodly. Listen, he's, he's talking about the judgment that is to come, but what he's describing again here, he's reaching back into the events here. He's referencing the same fallen angels in the context text of the flood, as Peter warns that God will also hold the unrighteous for judgment. All right, one more, one more verse. Jude 6 and 7 says, and the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling. 
He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulge in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. And what Jude is doing is saying, listen, listen, if God is able to save the righteous in the midst of a world that is unrighteous and ungodly and utterly depraved. God is able, church. He did it in the past. He's going to do it in the future. It's fascinating when Jude, he references two separate events and the connections are, are, are so incredible. He, he, he connects these two events as if there's something similar going on. We know this. There's some kind of sexual immorality taking place. By the way, in Sodom and Gomorrah, um, remember what was taking place there. The men of the city were so overcome with sin and depravity and wickedness and lust, they wanted to try to rape violently the angels who came to rescue Lot. Now, some of you are saying, well, I thought the New Testament says that you know, in the Gospels, that, that the angels in heaven, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, which is absolutely true. And it's why Jude, Jude here, you can put it back up, Jude is so important to understand. Notice what it says at the beginning. Um, they left their proper dwelling place. So Jude and Jesus are not in conflict with each other. The angels in heaven, they don't marry or are given in marriage. But these angels, they left their proper dwelling place. They crossed a boundary marker that was never intended for them to be crossed. And it was so vile, it was so wicked, it was so depraved that it's mentioned here in the New Testament. It's also fascinating to think just for a moment about the way angels appear in heaven. You notice it says in the text here, that the sons of God, so it's, so it's male taking daughters of men, female. And I, I just think it's a fascinating, maybe biblical insight to recognize every time angels appear in human form in the Bible, what sex, gender do they appear in? Male. Every time. Combine that with the fact that we know in the New Testament, demon possession is a very real thing. There's something in, in, in the demonic realm, in the supernatural, spiritual, they, they, they long for, or they crave for the physical body, the human body. They have a fixation on, on the nature of man. Perhaps in, in this setting, some believe these demons possessed human bodies and then had relations with other human women, but many believe, and I lean in this direction, that these are actual angelic beings who take on some kind of physical form. And they marry human women. Let me give you one more reason that I think this is the right perspective here, because this is the oldest view. Now, that's not definitive. Just because something is the oldest view doesn't make it the right view. 
But I do think it's, it's helpful to just note this, that the earliest Jewish exegetes held this view as represented in, in sources like First Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Septuagint, the writings of Philo and Josephus, the Jewish historian, uh, uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls as well. The same position was held in early uh, Christian writers like Clement of Ang- Alexandria, I'll get that, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and Origen. And I know, you hear this and you're like, this, is a, this seems a little bit unbelievable. This is a little bit crazy, right? I don't think so. The uh, highly respected Old Testament scholar Gordon Wenham has said this. He said this, if the modern reader finds this story incredible, that reflects a materialism that tends to doubt the existence of spirits, good or ill. But those who believe that the creator could unite himself to human nature in the virgin's womb will not find this story intrinsically beyond belief. Isn't that awesome? Okay, we believe God took on flesh. Amen? This isn't that crazy. And if you still think it's crazy, I mean, we're not that far removed from the garden, are we? Where, where Satan himself took on the form of a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve? It's almost as like, you know, we could be inclined to forget that there's a spiritual war going on at this point, And all of a sudden, you know, we're, we're, we're fast forwarded through these genealogies. And all of a sudden, it's like God just smacks us in the face again and says, listen, I'm, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. I'm going to bring about my promised seed. But Satan's not done yet. He's still after the people of God. He's still trying to interrupt the plan of God. He's still trying to do damage to the human race. He hates the human race because God loves the human race. This is a picture of unmitigated lust and the lowest levels of sexual perversion It has to. Listen, if we take this interpretation, I think there's every reason to, and even if you don't, you should be reminded right now that we are living in the midst of a spiritual war. From the beginning, Satan has sought to corrupt humanity and to prevent them from worshiping God. The depravity of humanity is, listen, a result of our desire to worship self, and Satan wants no more than to fuel that desire. All of human depravity is a result of a failure to worship God and instead a desire to worship self. And you know what's really interesting? We can see this in our world today. Escalating depravity always seems to be evidenced in greater degrees of sexual immorality. Satan loves to corrupt what God has created good. And remember that sex and marriage were created good before the fall. And we're living in a culture where sexual freedom and fulfillment are the ultimate forms of demonically inspired self-worship and rebellion against God. It's interesting that pagan cults have almost always incorporated some form of sexual immorality and perversion into their, their worship. And, and while what we see here in the scriptures is extreme, 
and it seems, by the way, to have been halted by God after this time, by the flood, don't be fueled. No, don't be fooled, sorry. Listen, the, the rise of pornography, the hypersexualization of our culture, the rejection of traditional marriage, family, and gender, and sexuality, the celebrating of sexual freedom has the fingerprints of Satan all over it. But what we need to see here in this passage is, is, this is crucial. You see, while Satan may be tempting and enticing, it is humanity that is taking the bait eagerly and willingly. These, these fathers and households are willingly giving their daughters over to this. They seem to be excited about this. They, they, they seem to, to want this, to enjoy this. They're willing to engage in, in satanic self-worship in the most debased forms. And you don't have to look very far to see this is taking place in our own culture today. I mean, I don't know if any of you caught a wind. I know you didn't watch it, but the Grammys, <laughs> nobody watches that, do they? Where, where the singers Sam Smith and transgender recording artist Kim, formerly Tim Petrus, sang their award-winning song of the year called Unholy that promotes promiscuity and sexual perversion, all the while dressed as Satan himself, to a standing ovation from the Hollywood elite. I mean, this is Romans 1, depths of human depravity. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It exposes a serious worship disorder of the human heart. What we see here, listen, is the takeover of culture by Satan and his hosts and the eager complicity of humanity in the project. Evil has multiplied faster than the population so that it has spread to the entire people on earth. And it's interesting, how does God respond to this? Well, God says, look at verse 3. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. I want you to notice here who's taking the responsibility for this. Who's being highlighted here. It is man who is the problem. Again, here's another interpretive difficulty. Well, what does this mean, this, this 120 years? I mean, his days shall be 120 years. There's really just two options. Um, some people believe this is uh, talking about God's grace before he brings the flood. So in other words, there's going to be roughly 120 years before the rain begins to fall. And, and some people believe that, you know, because of this, that Noah was building the ark for 120 years. That's a very possible view. I think the, the alternative view is more likely, and that is here, that what God is going to do is he's going to shorten the lifespan of humanity in contrast to the previous sections, the, first, the, the chapters 4 and 5, where humanity was living for hundreds and hundreds of years, 900 years. God's like, I can't put up with you people anymore. Certainly not for this long. 
And, and so I think what this is alluding to is there's going to be a gradual shortening of the human lifespan so that eventually, shortly after the flood, what we're going to get to is what becomes now normative, which is 120 years is incredibly long for anybody to live. And then we get to this really strange verse, right? Again, more interpretive challenges. Look at verse 4. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward where the sons of God came into the daughters of man and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. So the question is, who are these Nephilim? And this is a really fascinating piece of scripture. But notice how they're defined here. They are these mighty men of renown. Some people think that these Nephilim are the the offspring of these ungodly unions between the sons of a God and the daughters of man. And so they birth these kind of mighty men of renown. Think of uh, these offsprings as like half human, half divine. You can think of the, the myths of the time, like the epic of Gilgamesh, where these human and divine figures are these incredible figures. That They're giants in nature. They accomplish inc- incredible uh, feats of strength. They're vicious warriors. That's possible. And the word Nephilim actually means giants. So there's this this idea that these are abnormally large or strong or vicious human beings. The only other time this word is used in the Old Testament is in the book of Numbers, uh, chapter 13, verse 33. Remember where the spies are sent into the land of Canaan? And they come back out and they tell uh, Moses and the people of God, the Nephilim are there, the sons of Anakim. They're, they're there in the land. They're, they're like, we were like grasshoppers before them. They're all giants in this place. Here's the problem. The Nephilim, if they were from these unholy unions, if they were also in the land of Canaan, that kind of presents to us a couple problems, doesn't it? It... it it suggests that maybe the Nephilim lived, you know, they clung to the top of the ark. I don't know. And they made it through the flood. I, I don't think that's plausible. I don't think that's possible. I think the text is pretty clear that everything is wiped off the face of the earth. It could imply that maybe this kind of event happened again, you know, post-flood. I don't think that's possible either. The New Testament passages seem to indicate that this was kind of a one-time event or, or during a, a certain portion of time, and those angels were punished for it. They're being held captive in the pits of hell before the final judgment comes. I, I think it's, it's possible, but it seems like Moses here is arguing against the idea that these are the the spawn of these unholy unions. I think this is polemical in nature. I think he's arguing against some common views of the day. You see, these guys were here, the text tells us, do you catch this? They were here before and after these marriages were taking place. So, so these, these Nephilim, these men of renown, these heroes of the past, they were there at the same time, but they were there before. They're contemporaries, but they were before, they're there after. And I think it's best to think of, of these Nephilim not as a, a race or a species of people. I think Nephilim is a title. 
It's a title being used to describe a kind of people. And make no mistake about it, these people were vicious warriors. They were violent. They were ruthless. They did wicked acts. And the the crazy part is they were elevated to popularity because of it. So in other words, what what we see Moses doing here is, again, remember, he's describing why why God is going to judge the world. And what we see is not only is marriage demonized, what we see is this, that violence is idolized. This is a culture that idolizes violence and power. By the way, if if that's not compelling, just look look at verse 11 for a second, Genesis chapter 6. We'll get there next week, but I want you just to hear this. Why did God flood the earth? Now, the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with what? Violence. The Nephilim aren't around. You know, you get some crazy conspiracy theories. You know, people believe the, the Nephilim are living in Antarctica and they're ruling the world from there. That's crazy talk. These were violent people. And what we see here is actually comparable in many ways to our culture, isn't it? We not only have a culture that's filled with sexual immorality, we have a culture that's filled with the love of violence. We live in a country that in some ways promotes violence against the helpless and the hopeless, don't we? In 2021, there was 10,064 medical assistance in dying provisions in Canada. Bringing the total number of medically assisted deaths in Canada since 2016 to 31,664. And that continues to increase steadily each year. In 2020, there were approximately 74,000 abortions performed on Canadian women as reported by hospitals and clinics. Violence continues to be celebrated in the self-worshipping cults of our world. And this verse shows the degree of depravity, but also corrects contemporary thinking. You see, this is intended, I think, to be understood as a footnote here. Peter Gentry has a great little video on YouTube. You can look up Peter Gentry and the Nephilim where he, he walks through this really carefully. He's, a, he's an ancient Near Eastern scholar and an expert in original languages, and, and he argues that, that here what we see is, is a footnote, that the original audience has some kind of idea about who the Nephilim are. You notice that they're not described, and you have to ask the question, well, why aren't we told who they are? Because the original audience already had a category for them. They knew who, who he was talking about. It's as if Moses is saying, listen, I know you've heard of these pagan myths. You've been steeped in the, the ancient Near Eastern pagan myths. You're told about these, um, these breed of people People who are man and God at the same time, like Gilgamesh, and he's saying to them, they aren't half God and half man. He's, he's as Peter Gentry says, he's demythologizing their worldview. Why? Well, here's why. Because in the ancient world, they were blaming the downfall and depravity of humanity on demonic activity. This is what they did in the book of Enoch in the third century BC. Paul warns about arguing. He he writes to Timothy and he warns Timothy about arguing about endless genealogies and myths. 
And this is a direct reference to the book of Enoch, which has a long genealogy of the angels until you get all the way to Satan himself. And you see, what they were inclined to do is to blame all of the chaos and the evil and the death and destruction in the world on Satan instead of blaming it on humans. And what Moses is doing is laying the blame squarely at the feet of humanity. Do you catch that? If you read through this passage, it's all about man, 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 man. And when Jude quotes and refers to this material, he's showing that the the sin is in the world because of human rebellion, not because of angelic sin. In other words, we have no one to blame but ourselves. What is God's perspective on this depravity? Look how he describes this in verse 5. The Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What an indictment against humanity. So it wasn't a small little bit of evil and wickedness. It was great evil. The depths of human depravity are summed up in stunning fashion right here. Notice again, the focus is not on the wickedness of the demonic realm. Did you catch that? The wickedness of man. How how bad is it? Every, only, all. It's internal, it's universal, it's continual, it's non-stop sin. They think about it all the time, they practice it all the time, and it's not just a few, it's everybody. This statement reminds us that we are not good (laughs) by nature. We are evil. There there are none good, no, not one. None righteous. And this is the inescapable condition of the world that reveals the necessity of God's judgment, his extreme judgment, because of the extreme depravity of man. And it reveals, secondly, the sorrow over human sin. It's interesting, when we think of sin, and we think of God's response to sin, what's the first thing that pops to your mind? If you're like me, it's anger, wrath. I mean, I mean we know the flood's coming, right? We know that, that God is not pleased with sin. We know that God is going to judge sin, and he's going to do it in the most uh, catastrophic way. And I've been so struck by this passage here because what we see is that before God gets to anger, God first suffers anguish. Moses here gives us a glimpse of God's heart. Notice what it says in verse 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. One of the marks of of personality is feeling. And here in Genesis, we read that God's heart was filled with pain, with grief, with sadness. And the word that's used here expresses the most intense form of human emotion. 
It's the same word that's used to describe mourning over the loss of a loved one due to death. And I think sometimes, you know, we think of God, you know, even if we believe in God, even if we're Christian, sometimes we think of God as this distant being somewhere out there. He's detached emotionally. He's kind of wound the world up and he's kind of just watching it all unfold. He's like this robot in the sky. But God is not some distant being that is disconnected from his creation. He is a personal being who is intimately involved with his creation. So much so that he is deeply grieved and pained. He's filled with sorrow over human sin. Why? Why? Because he loves his creation. He longs for humanity to live in intimate, personal fellowship and communion with him. That's why he made humanity above all other created beings. He made humanity in the image of God to know him, to love him, to follow him, to worship him, to walk with him all the days of his life. God just, he loves us so much. But left to themselves, left to ourselves, We just run further and further away from God and straight towards sin. And how does God respond to sin? This is amazing to think about. How does God respond to the sin of the world, the sin in your own life? First, like a parent who watches their child reject their love and kindness as they turn their back on them. Not first in anger, but in anguish. Not first in shouting, but in sobbing. Deep sobs of of heart-wrenching pain. Think of Jesus, God in flesh. When he looked at the city of Jerusalem as he drew near, the, the scriptures say in Luke 19 that he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. I mean, God is so compassionate. He, he has this broken heart because of sin and sinners. Do you know the sorrow and sadness of sin in your own life? Have you experienced The deep grief and sadness, not just because of sin done against you, but because of sin that you've done against God. And God God is so sorrowful. He's so saddened that the text tells us that he regretted making man. Source of even more debate. Does God change his mind? How is it possible that an all-knowing, all-powerful God would regret something that he did Listen, God wasn't surprised or, or taken unaware by any of these events. The scripture says in 1 Samuel 15, 29, the glory of Israel, that's God, will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. He's not like you and I. His regret is not the same, where he does something he didn't mean to do, or, or, or he does something by accident, or, or things don't go the way that he thought they were going to. That's our kind of regret. That is not God's kind of regret. You see, you can know something is going to happen, yet still be saddened by it when it does. Commentator Kenneth Matthews says God's response of grief over the making of humanity is not remorse in the sense of sorrow over a mistaken creation. 
Our verse shows that God's pain has its source in the perversion of human sin. The making of man is no error. It is what man has made of himself. God's pain over human rebellion does not remove the punishment required for that rebellion. In fact, look at what verse 7 says. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. Man who is supposed to have dominion over all these other created things. It's like God is saying, you have, you have blown this whole thing to smithereens. And what's called for is a total erasure of all living things upon the earth. He's going to wipe it all out. That's how bad things have become. It's so broken it needs to be thrown out. This isn't like, you know, you get in a a car crash and your vehicle's being evaluated to see whether or not it's a write-off. This is a complete and total write-off. I mean, it's not like we've got to make a few fixes here and there, patch these things up. We've got to wipe this whole, we have to chuck this whole thing out. Cataclysmic kind of erasure. The coming of the flood, this is what's fascinating. The coming flood can't change the sinful character of the human heart, but it does exact justice and give us a glimmer of hope and point to what God will do. You see, amidst the backdrop of extreme sin and extreme judgment, we see the greatness of God's grace. Look at the first word of verse 8. But... But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Or as the King James Version has it, Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. This is the very first occurrence of the Hebrew word from which we get the words favor or grace. And I want you to notice that Noah didn't earn God's grace. Noah found grace. This grace or favor was saving grace. It was all of grace. Noah had responded like Enoch to the grace of God. The scriptures are going to tell us in the following verses that like Enoch, Noah walked with God. Like Enoch, he he walked in deepest intimacy and obedience with God. Noah knew God. Listen, listen, make no mistake about it. Noah was a wretch like the rest of mankind. And left to himself, he would have perished like the rest of mankind. He was not saved by his righteousness. He was saved by grace. But God. But God. You say, how important is this passage of Scripture? How important is this narrative? Well, Jesus thought it was incredibly important. In fact, in Matthew 24, verses 37 through 39, listen to this. Jesus says, For as were the days of Noah, so will the coming of the Son of Man. 
For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. There's a day coming where God will judge the earth, not with a flood ever again, but with fire. He will come to purge the earth of all of its sin and wickedness and depravity. And the scary part is, like in the times of Noah, we're going to read about this next week, people are just going to be going about their lives thinking like, this is going to go on forever. Life's never going to change. There's no God. Who cares? Just eat, drink, and be merry. Live your life. Sexual freedom, violence, drunkenness, orgies. Just do whatever you want to do. Who cares? And in the blink of an eye, Jesus is going to show up. And the moment he does, every eye will see, every heart will know that not only is there a God, but there is a God who judges the living and the dead. And our only hope, listen, listen, our only hope is the great grace of God. That's it. When you stop and really think about it, the most surprising element of this story is not that God is ready to destroy everybody, but that he is willing to save anybody. And this is what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. The greatness of God's grace toward us who believe. That God has, has sent one greater than Noah. And if you believe in him, you can be saved from your sin and you can be spared the judgment that is to come. I'm going to invite the, the ushers to come forward as we prepare our hearts to receive the Lord's Supper. And as we're doing that, listen, the, the sermon's not quite over. But as this is being passed around, I want to encourage you, listen, to be thinking carefully about what we're seeing here. By the way, um, as this is being passed around, there's two cups. Make sure you grab them. They're stacked together. Um, This is for believers. This is for those who are uh, trusting in Jesus as their Lord and their Savior. And if, if you haven't... Um, been baptized as a believer, if you've not made a profession of faith in Christ, please just let this pass. That's okay. But I, I want this to sink in deeply. So as this is being passed around, these, these symbols of the gospel, of the grace of God, I, I want us to maybe soak in this a little more. I want to ask a question to prepare our hearts to really receive this, and that's this. How should we respond to all of this? The first way we ought to respond is by recognizing the depths of our depravity. You see, we live in a world that wants to minimize sin and wants us to glory in our shame. It's good for our souls to to acknowledge how sinful we actually are, how sinful we can be, and how sinful we could be apart apart from the intervening grace of God in our lives. When we just pause for a moment and we reflect um, on, on our sin, listen, it's, it's sobering, it's humbling to admit that we're far worse people than we actually often believe ourselves to be. That apart from God's 
divine intervention, we would be lost forever, deserving of God's extreme judgment because every single one of us has practiced extreme rebellion against God. And so I want you just, to, just right now, be thinking about you and your, your sin, and, and I want you to remember that your sin is first and foremost against God. Second way we should respond is by expressing sorrow over our sin. Think about your life right now. Do, do you seek sin, celebrate sin, or do you have genuine sorrow over your sin? Does it pain our hearts to think about our rebellion against God? Does it produce anguish before it produces anger? When we think about even the sin in the world, when we look at the sin being propagated all around us, does it produce first anger or is there anguish in our hearts knowing that this, this is a rebellion against God and his majesty and his beauty? There are two kinds of sorrow that we can experience in this world. There is a worldly sorrow that produces regret without repentance and leads to damnation. It's, I'm sorry I got caught. I, I'm sorry you found out. And then there is a godly sorrow that produces repentance without regret that leads to salvation and if we recognize the depths of our depravity, the only right response is to express sorrow over sin and let it lead us to repentance. And I just want to urge you, listen, part of the reason we don't flee from sin, part of the reason we don't find victory over sin is because we never truly have genuine sorrow over our sin. And some of you here today, you're hearing maybe for the first time about your depravity and how sinful you are and your sin is against God. And you're saying, well, I don't know what to do with that. I don't know where to go with that. Here's what the Bible says. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. Be broken and contrite. Repent for your sin. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ so you can be saved. And we must pray for hearts that grieve over sin. Listen, I'm convinced of this in my own life. I need this more in my own life. You need it more in your life. We will never see God work in power in our lives until we grieve the sin that grieves the heart of God. Until we're broken over it, until we weep over it, until we beg God to crush us so that he can breathe life into us. And if you get there, if you can grieve over your sin, if you can have sorrow over your sin, and if you can repent genuinely before God because of your sin, here's, here's where it will lead you. Listen, this should be our response to rejoice in the greatness of God's grace. While God could have destroyed everyone, he made a way of salvation through someone. And listen, we have no claim on God. We have not earned anything but his just wrath and our eventual destruction. That's what we all deserve. But we can find God's grace in Christ. Listen, the man of sorrows. God's sorrow led him to come as the man of sorrows. The one who knew no sin, no depravity, but who would be made sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. We deserved extreme judgment. But the most extreme judgment of all was not the flood, it was the cross. God would go to the greatest of lengths for you. God loved you so much 
that the sin you deserve to be punished for, he would place upon his own son and judge him instead of you. That's amazing grace. Father, we love you. And we're so thankful, Lord, that you have sought us and found us. God, we confess to you right now that we, we are sinners. No one righteous in this room, Lord, not on our own, not apart from you. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Father, we fall at your mercy now. We declare, Lord, that you are right and true. We are deserving of judgment. You would be just, O oh God, to judge us, to send us to hell for eternity. And so we God call out to you and say, forgive us again. Cleanse us. Renew in us a right spirit, O oh God. God, we praise you that as we confess our sins, Lord, we are, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins. To cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We look to Jesus, our Lord and our Savior now, and we see that he is the man of sorrows. He, he was judged in our place. His body was broken for us. His blood was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. And God, we, we turn in that truth. Our whole eternity hinges upon this reality that you defeated death. You conquered the grave. And you give grace to all who believe. Thank you for the grace of the gospel. Thank you for your son. We pray this in his precious name. Amen. On that night, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that together. He then took the cup. And after he had prayed, reminding them that this represented the forgiveness of their sins, the shedding of his blood, and the new covenant that he was establishing with them. Let's celebrate that together. God, again, we praise you. We thank you for your grace. And God, we ask now that you would stir our hearts. God, our response to your grace ought to be passionate praise. It ought to be rejoicing. It ought to be celebrating. And so, Lord, as we have even celebrated the Lord's Supper together, God, we know that you take our mourning and you turn it into dancing. God, you take our sorrow and you turn it into joy. And, and Lord, we pray now that as we have looked at our sin and have been reminded what we deserve, that God, our hearts will be filled with joy knowing that you have not given us what we deserve. You have given us what we could never earn. You have given us grace. And we pray, God, that we would stand in that grace the grace that we will rejoice in for all eternity. We pray that you would receive our praise even now in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and praise our King.